Getting split Getting ready. Split Getting ready. split ready. Getting split ready. For my wife, God rest her soul. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. She's not dead. <laughs> We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce and separation. Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the show? Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant. You do taxes. And um, a lot of... Do taxes, but well, well you're not a CPA, but you yeah. know taxes. I know. Um, taxes. You do your own taxes. You did our company taxes for a while, um, but it's tax time, right? And I think, well, it's a a later tax, belated tax time. Um, but people are thinking about it, and um, I thought it made sense to chat a little bit about changes, planning. You know, I think coming out of COVID, a lot of people, you know, there was this divorce wave people were talking about. And I don't know if it'll come or not. I don't, you know, the attorneys I talked to think either, you know, either way, but there could have been people waiting for safety or other reasons until everything opened up and tax planning is a huge part of divorce. So what's going on in the tax world? Everyone says, yeah, everyone's talked about the divorce wave pretty much since, you know, two weeks into the pandemic, right. When we were all at home and like, this is going to be rough. Um, and it might, right? But it's also got some challenges to it. So maybe it is pushing people towards divorce, but if they're pragmatic and one person has lost their job or they've depleted their savings, you know, maybe the timing is a little difficult. So we probably will see some spike in divorce uh, percentages from this, but it might be kind of drawn out, kind of like the people who are doing the mental calculus on their homes. They're doing a very similar calculation as unromantic as it sounds with their marriage. Um there are some tax changes coming. Um, there are increased ta- uh, child tax credits this year that some people are going to see monthly checks beginning in July. Um, it's a really big deal for families that are lower income or poverty level to be getting those monthly checks for the kids. Uh, Can I ask you a question about that, though? Yeah. So if you're in a situation where the parenting plan breaks down how you, how you apportion the write-offs and such for the kids, how does that work? And where will those checks go? Because if it's a contentious divorce or post-divorce, you know, that money, if it goes to one person, isn't yep. going back to the other. Well, so this has come up a couple of times in the last year or two with stimulus money, right? So the yeah. stimulus money follows the child. These tax credits will follow the child. So if you have a household with two kids and the parents swap claiming a child each year, and one kid is 17 and one kid is 12, the 12 year old is eligible for that child tax credit. The 17 year old is not. So then it has to kind of be revisited and similar with the stimulus money prior to uh, the Trump tax tax changes, there was reasons for the lower income person to claim the children on their taxes. It was more beneficial. There were some changes made uh, during Trump's presidency that made it not really beneficial for that person to claim them. But if that person is still claiming both the kids, they got a lot of stimulus money in the last two years for those kids. Oh yeah. And so we've had people come in just to mediate who gets the stimulus money or how it's spent or who claims the kids on taxes moving forward. And if we have, you know, we put a pandemic clause or an emergency clause in a lot of our agreements now, because as you said, this was unprecedented, but it doesn't mean that something like this can't happen again. And it might not be this, but what happens when we have things that, are unforeseen. You know me, I'm a doom and gloom guy. It's when it happens again. Yeah, when well, it happens. And something like will, that. right? Something will happen. Yes. So yeah. we've been doing a lot of revisiting of who gets 
those funds because they're not insignificant. Now, this isn't tax related, but on the things that you've mediated in the past, are they coming back and saying, help us come up with an agreement in case this crap happens again? No, people aren't usually that proactive. It's more of our parenting plan doesn't work at all because my wife is an ER nurse or my ex-wife's an ER nurse and I don't want the kids around her. And she like, how do we do a parenting plan that was shared when life changed? Right. Or, you know, a lot of times people, you know, they have two kids, they remarry, they have two kids. Maybe one of the new kids is an infant or is immune compromised. And this person is still sending their kids to school, but this person is completely shut down. How do we figure out how to make that work? And so it was all completely unforeseen, but brings up a lot of really good questions. And something that I say in mediation that we need to be as detailed in the agreement as we can be, not because you have to live by the agreement, right? There's no parenting plan police that's going to come and say, you guys said that, you know, Bob was getting Christmas Eve and Nancy was getting Christmas day. If you agree to vary, vary. But if you've got everything in that agreement that we can think of to put in it, then there's no potholes. If you have a disagreement in the future, you've got the tiebreaker. You don't have to come back to mediation. You don't have to go to court. So it just helps us think through what does it look like in two years? What does it look like in five years? So it so makes me think um, <clears throat> we were talking a lot about real estate and yep. the part about real estate with divorce people don't think about enough is one, if they're keeping the property, who's getting to write off, you know, what part of it potentially probably a person staying in it. But if sometimes there's a shared payment past the divorce and stuff as you know, yep. the other part is if you're selling, right. If, if you're going to Julius and you're saying, let's sell this right now and you're selling it at the top. So your basis is what it is, but you've got a lot of a lot of gain, financial gain. What do they have to be thinking about? Because capital gains become an issue, no? They can. Uh, it really depends on the average cost of homes in your area. And we were talking about this the other day. You know, in Northwest Indiana, where I am, there's not a lot of homes that have more than five hundred thousand dollars in equity when they're sold right now. But if you're in River Forest, there definitely are. So as a married couple you have a $500,000 exemption from capital gains when you sell your home. As a single person, you have a $250,000 exemption. So let's just say you and I are married, Doug, we get divorced. You quit claim the deed. I'm the only person on the deed and I go to sell in four years. I don't have that $500,000 exemption anymore. I only have the 250. So if we had thought about it or been instructed on how to do it prior and we had left you on the title, that exemption might still be there. People are always very eager to quit claim. They are. They're very eager to extricate, right? Right. And I get it. Like, you don't want to be entangled. You don't want people seeing your, your ex, seeing your bank records or your cell phone records. That's fine. But this is a really big price tag, right? $250,000 of a tax exemption or of a capital gains exemption is a big deal. So, well, and, and the other thing is... Um, I would be interested in your, your thoughts. Um, I'm talking to more and more people who took money out of the market and bought investment properties. Yep. And, you know, oftentimes in divorce, they're selling those as well, or they're, they're doing stuff with that and that they don't have the capital gains exemption. Now. Correct. Correct. So one way around that I had a couple, a couple years ago, um, when they divorced, the husband went to go live in one of their investment properties. Cause if he lives there for two years, that creates the exemption. So if you have someone kind of counseling you on this on how to do it, there's ways to save some tax money. Cause really whether it goes 
in one person's pocket or the other. If it's not in Uncle Sam's pocket and stays in the collective marital pot, that's better, right? There's more money for you. It's more money for the kids. Totally. Totally. Nobody wants to pay Uncle Sam more than they have to. What are the biggest mistakes you're seeing people make right now? The number one mistake that people make in divorce and finances is um, when they're splitting retirement accounts. Okay. So when you split a retirement account, if it's a account that's covered by ERISA, so 401k, 403b, pension plan, through your employer, not just an IRA that you have at Chase, right? So something that's through your employer, you have to get what's called a qualified domestic relations order. And that says, you know, Bob's going to get 50% of Nancy's 401k. Fine. So Nancy takes that 50% of the 401k, puts it into an IRA or a 401k in her name with that company. And then two months later, decides she wants to take out $100,000. If she doesn't do it immediately as part of that transfer, then there's a 10% penalty. And people think they have time to make those decisions. And you don't. It has to all be pursuant to the divorce. Right. It's like on a purchase, if you buy a house with a cash offer or you pay cash for it, if it's a primary, you got 90 days to encumber it with a mortgage or you can never write off the interest. And that's not a lending question. That's the IRS. So it's really interesting when I have people say, I just want to pay cash. I'm like, wow, you're paying $450,000 in cash for something or whatever. And you're you really probably want to be able to write off that interest at some point. Right. But you wouldn't know that unless someone who does this all day, every day tells you that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, or if they just take the cash when we're doing asset divisions and someone's like, well, I'll take 400,000 in this 401k and I'll take the equity in the home and I'm going to take the cash from the 401k and put it as a down payment on the house. That 400,000 isn't 400,000. You're paying taxes on it to the tune of 30 some odd percent if it's 400,000. So that number is much different. So you really have to have tax adjusted numbers when you're looking so that it's apples to apples. Well, and it's interesting. I do want to touch on something from a lending perspective that touches on taxes, but really important because you're asking about um, um, people getting loans. And I'm sure Julius could chime in where self-employed clients are really are as good a clients as anyone else, but it's way more complex. And you like me? What telling, well, what I'm telling people right now is if you're getting ready to buy a property, take a good hard look at what your taxes are going to look like. Right now, I can tell you in the lending industry, and you're, if you're self-employed, regardless if you're Schedule C or you got an 1120S or whatever, uh, if you own 25% more or more of your source of income, uh, you're self-employed. I have people come and say, but I get a W-2. Well, great, but you're self-employed and you're going to have to provide information on the health of that business. So typically that means between one and two years tax returns, depending on what, what the underwriting systems say, all schedules and a year-to-date P&L with at least 90 days bank statements validating the P&L. People crap their pants when I tell them that. And they say, well, I don't want to provide it. You know, I've always paid my bills. Why are you picking on me? Blah, blah, blah. And it's a matter of saying, I'm not, that's what the rules are. You got to apply them evenly. So, so that there's fair lending, but with taxes, they should really be thinking about what they're writing off that year. Because if, if there are a lot of clients who came to us early enough where they want to buy something and sometimes divorce is part of it, and they're looking at it and saying, well, what do I have to do? And we can actually run numbers and say, don't write off as much as 2019, make it look good so that you have more income. You're going to get hit with a little more taxes, but I could get you that loan. And then they file it the right way. But if they, if they, 
don't, and we're not CPAs, of course, we tell them to talk to their CPA, but what I can tell them is, here's an income that you need to show. And if you don't want to pay Uncle Sam, the, the, the lending, the, the uh, mortgage underwriters are not going to look at the same way either. Um, so it's, it's, there's a lot of planning with things that they don't think have that ripple effect. Yeah, I've had a couple of deals blow up in the last uh, two years where the buyer was self-employed, had a pre-approval from a reputable company, and it blew up because that loan officer either didn't understand that they had to dig deeper or they just understood it and didn't do it. So, um, you know, I think uh, it's interesting that you say that, but then you have these listing agents, they will call a buyer's agent to have a conversation. Tell me about your buyer, just to make sure yep. that they are a really strong and vetted buyer. And if they're self-employed, uh, an experienced listing agent will know that there are some more questions that need to be asked just to make sure that they don't have a deal blow up in their face. Right, right. And obviously you or I would never get personal information because um, that's protected. But, you know, again, the, the, the people been doing this a long time, they, they, you know, they can read the tea leaves. There's an instinct about, about, you know, what you need to do to get the right buyer. And, and that's, you know, I think it's always been that way, but it's hypersensitive right now. I think that's important to note for self-employed people too, because if you are self-employed and the last time you bought a house was 20 years ago, the lending process is totally different. Yeah. <laughs> you don't walk to the community bank and be like, you know, hi, Bob, and just sign here the way that it used to be for, you know, people who were invested in the community and had businesses or whatnot. So it's very different and it's a different ballgame. Um, yeah. Oh, totally. And, and I think it will be an interesting echo because I think, I read somewhere, I don't remember the article, but they were saying COVID and just the economy and how things were going to, there's like an unprecedented number of people starting businesses. You know, there was something, I think I was on NPR and they were talking about the leap from people like making stuff in their kitchen where they're selling like bagels or hot sauce or whatever you have it. They're starting to grow into, you know, self-employed bars and they've never been before, but they were laid off and they had no choice. Yep. And it's a totally different situation. Um, the other thing, at least from a lending perspective, I think from a tax perspective, it helps people out. But from a lending perspective, cash is not a good thing always if it's just cash sitting under your mattress. So you're not paying taxes on it, but you can't use it for lending. And you know, if you're if you're not telling your CPA about it, then it's probably something that that we can't use either. Um, <laughs> so to end the segment, Mariah, what would you say are the top three considerations people should make going into 2021? Pay attention to timing. A lot of the courts are backed up right now anyway, because of COVID, but pay attention to timing. You're going to file your taxes based on your marital status on the last day of the year. Right. So it could be very beneficial to file married for 2021 and then get divorced the second week of January. Uh, it might be beneficial to do it otherwise. And when you're looking at timing, keep that in perspective too. And I always encourage people to consider health insurance at the beginning of the process, Right. If someone's going to lose health insurance pursuant to the divorce, do all your doctor's appointments. Spend the next two, three months while we're figuring out the details of the divorce. Get all your checkups, get your mammograms, get your screenings, get your whatever you need to get so that you can, you know, have some time for those basic things, right? You may need a catastrophic plan, but you've done most of your stuff. Um, don't forget about carryovers of losses. I think a lot of people um, 
don't look at that as the asset that it almost is, right? If you've got a passive loss or a operating loss on your tax returns, who's going to, who's going to take that in the, in the divorce? It is an asset, right? So it helps on your taxes. Um, what other big, I got one. I got a good one. Yeah. What? Not totally tax related, but I think in my experience, seeing divorcing couples, knowing where the economy is, if you got a hobby that can make money and you think you can make money at it, turn it from more than a hobby, get incorporated, start yep. doing it with a degree of, of a deliberate effort. Um, if, if it's something that you can make money at, that could be your fallback. Uh, and I think doing that um, and starting to build that tax history, because for lending, you have to be self-employed for at least two years. Now, that doesn't mean the business had to be making money. It could be a second job. It could be another business. It could be, you know, we're in the gig economy or whatever, right? But let's say you start a business and you do it the right way. You know, you actually incorporate and you have it on your taxes and you do a certain thing. Well, then if you need that business two years down the road, you've already got that history. If you try and start from zero to 102 seconds, it won't work. The, 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 at least the lending system, and I know the tax system, and to a lot of degree, the real estate system are all very, very regimented, very, very, um, I'll say draconian because of, in my world, it's fair lending. You know, yep. they make sure that everything is objective so that you can't, so that nobody has the really ability to discriminate. Well, that goes, that cuts both ways. You can't discriminate, but you can't make subjective decisions. So if you could do something now where maybe you can show a little less income from a tax perspective, yep. which is great because you could, your business could lose money over a certain amount of time. Do that. Think about doing that. And then you got something to fall back on or not really retire. So that would be my, my addition. Yep. I'll wrap it up with um, the numbers don't lie. Right. So if you have been claiming no income from your business for a couple of years, and then you want to be self-employed and buy a house, you did a good job of shielding your income from taxes, but it's not going to help you buy a house. Right. If you are in the gig economy and you want to come to the table and say, you don't have an income when it comes to child support or alimony, but yet you're paying your bills and you're paying your rent and you're paying your mortgage, you do have an income and it's easily deduced by looking at your financial statements. So right. it's easier just to come with full disclosure because the numbers are the numbers. Right. Right. No, that's great. So, Great show today, and my dogs are going berserk, so I've got to end it because uh, <laughs> otherwise it would be um, the, the fun of podcasting from home. I really want to thank our guest, uh, Julius Dickens, um, fantastic realtor, great input. Uh, Dreamtown Realty is where you're at, but if they want to get hold of you, how can our listeners get hold of you? Sure. Um, my cell phone is a great way to get a hold of me, 312-451-8894. And uh, you can reach out to me via email at jdickens, J-D-I-C-K-E-N-S at dreamtown.com. Thanks for having me today. No, thank you so much. And I, and I, I see a repeated guest appearances coming because uh, I think you give, you give great advice. So, you know, what I would say is if you like what we do, not you, Julius, I know you like what we do, but if our listeners like subscribe, share our information, um, share this podcast, check out splitready.com. Uh, there's great resources to, to get split ready and know that if you're separating or getting divorced, that they're what the, what the right way to go is, or at least what the right considerations are. So Mariah, you know, you take don't us out. it's been a while. 
I don't even remember. Um, you need to know what you don't know. So if you or someone that you know is thinking about getting split ready, um, or thinking Check about out. divorce, go to our website. And we really do believe that it is possible to move through your divorce with your finances, your integrity, and hopefully your sense of humor intact. And we want you to have access to the information that'll help you get there. Fantastic. So thanks everyone for listening and we will see you in May.